If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 607. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. I've got a new course out right now, 25 People Who Changed America. It's out for pre-order. When the course is officially launched, the sale that I'm offering through the email list goes away. So you want to be on the email list to get the sale. I've also cut 25% off my classes at McClanahan Academy. And that's at the current price. The prices go up in April. So if you want to get the best deals at McClanahan Academy, now is the time to snag those things. But you got to be on the email list to do it. So make sure you've either subscribed at McClanahan Academy or you've gotten on my email list at brianmcclanahan.com. So either way is a great way to do it. Also, you can click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can clip on, click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. I do appreciate all your support. And it's always fun to hear what you want to what you want me to talk about. Now, this is not a listener-generated episode, though it does come from a colleague of mine that I saw that he posted something about this. And so I, it was just such a funny review. I had to cover this. And it's clear... I mostly do U.S. history. Okay, I'll, I'll set that out there. My my field has always been U.S. history, but I enjoy uh, Western civilization. I enjoy uh, teaching that. I enjoy reading about it. I enjoy European history, um, and so it's fun to to read a review of a really bad book on European history, particularly the Middle Ages. Now. The infection of wokeism, political correctness, anything else you want to call it, has permeated everything, right? It's not just U.S. history that suffers from really bad historians. And there's a number of them. And I am going to review another book. I mentioned it last or actually early this week or last week on this. I'm going to review another book um, that, and it's, I'm going to, I'm going to eviscerate it. Okay. So that's coming within the next week or so. I just need to have the time to sit down and do it. As you know, I'm running a little behind this week. My podcast is coming out late. So um, I was uh, off last week and I recorded ahead. And now I'm trying to catch up. But regardless, uh, this, this infection uh, in the historical profession of everything is race, class, gender is it's not just in the U.S. history profession. It's everywhere. Everything is awful when it comes to modern historians. They don't even know how to get out of their own way. They're so bad most of the time. And their conclusions are absolutely stupid. Now, this is because historians have become little more than op-ed writers. Their books are little more than polemics. And they really don't care for objectivity at all. And I've mentioned on this podcast, there isn't really anything of historical objectivity is gone. It never really has been there. 
But in this particular case, they don't even try to hide it anymore. They don't try to display some level of objectivity. They have an agenda. They're operating like a lawyer would, or more importantly, like a scientist. They have a hypothesis, and they're going to get all the data to prove it. Right? Anything to the contrary is not going to be favorite. That's not favorable to them. They're just going to ignore it. So a lot of times you get cherry-picked data. You get laziness. Uh, the book that I'm going to review, if you look at his sources, it's almost all secondary sources. And yet, this book is considered to be a valuable piece of literature by a peer-reviewed press. I mean, this is, he's very proud of it. Trump pounds his own chest about this and uh, says things, anybody that doesn't think I'm a good historian, I've got a book with a peer-reviewed press. Well, your book is still garbage. It doesn't matter. So, in fact, because it's a peer-reviewed book, it's even worse. So you've got, you've got that problem in every part of the historical profession. If you're an establishment historian, generally, and you've produced a book in the last 20 or 30 years, generally your book is going to be garbage. It doesn't mean there aren't good books out there. There are a few here and there uh, that people... But see, the problem is the profession itself. If you produce a book that's actually good, you're not going to get a job. Because, look, historians are also thin-skinned. Historians are also people that don't want to be challenged. Historians are people that don't want to have people better than them in their departments, so they're not going to hire you. And if you don't toe the conventional wisdom, if you don't toe the line, if you don't accept all of that, well, then you're a problem and you have to go. So uh, it's not just U.S. history that's infected with this. It's also European history. So this is a review in um, The American Conservative by... Uh, Michael Warren Davis. The book is The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe. Once you see that phrase, a new history, uh, you have to be concerned. Uh, the book is written by Matthew Gabriel and David Perry, and they're really bad historians. First of all, they're woke activists. As I mentioned on this podcast before, you've got activists. You don't have historians, you have activists. And what they're trying to do is write a history that's going to make their activism seem relevant and seem justified by something that happened, even if they make it up in the past, right? So Davis says, Around the year 849, a group of Byzantine monks paid a young woman to accuse the patriarch of Constantinople, Methodist I, of seducing her. His defense ought to be studied by every law student on the planet. At his trial, Methodist uh, lifted his robes, triumphantly exposing himself to the court. They gasped. The primate's manhood was shriveled almost beyond recognition. Methodists explained that as a young priest, he asked St. Peter to save him from lustful urges. St. Peter obliged, and the result was now plain for the whole empire to see. The primate was acquitted and eventually canonized. The monks were excommunicated. No story, in my opinion, better captures the medieval thing. The Middle Ages are full of magical, mystical happenings. We all know the bit in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle where dragons appear in England, a portent of the Viking invasion in which the heathen men made lamentable havoc in the Church of God and Holy Island by rap, rapine and slaughter. Still, uh, Thronies may be disappointed by the dearth of dragons in medieval history. Uh, withered genitalia is more usual. That's why we love the Middle Ages. That's what makes John Norwich's facts more enchanting than George R.R. Martin's fiction. It's so plausible. Even the miracles are a little pedestrian. You hardly notice them at all. It's as if they were commonplace in medieval Europe. And who knows, maybe they were. See, I love this part. Here's a guy that really loves medieval history, and he it comes out in his writing. These are fun stories. We forget about how fun history is when you get to the stories. When it just becomes a series of woke polemics, it's not fun anymore. It becomes a drag to read it. 
It becomes a drag to study it. This is why people hate history now. I did a podcast years ago, a couple of years ago, on why people don't go to historic sites anymore. And one of the reasons is simply because people don't want to be lectured to. They don't want to be told that everything that's happened and everything everything is bad, right? They don't want to do that anymore. And that's exactly what you get in all these on all these historic sites. So when you have history written that way, nobody wants to read it. Nobody wants to engage in it. They want to have stuff that's fun to read. And I'm going to tell you, all the bad stuff is not necessarily fun to read. The stories are fun, but not when you make it about wokeism. He says, whether you believe in miracles or not, one thing is clear. A history of the Middle Ages might, may be anything but boring. At least I thought so until I read Matthew Gabriel and David Perry's new study, The Bright Ages, A New History of Medieval Europe. Now, that's it. See, it's boring. It's boring because it's woke. It's boring. Most of what makes the book so tedious is the book's political agenda. And to be fair, the authors are upfront about that agenda. They wrote The Bright Ages, they explain, because medievalism is bound up with ultra-conservative politics. Quote, Sometimes symbols of the Middle Ages are used approvingly by the far right, they write, emblazoned on shields in Virginia, fluttering on flags of the U.S. Capitol is stormed or peppered across the screed of a mass murderer in New Zealand. The only way to cure these 15 or 20 teenage boys of their delusion is to declare an all-out war on history. The authors state their opposition to whiteness, which they call a modern idea with medieval roots. The myth of whiteness is also used to prop up, quote, the fiction of Europe as the invented and the invented concept of Western civilization. In other words, white supremacism is wrong because white people haven't done anything to be proud of. Actually, white people don't even exist. Feel stupid yet? Bigot? Right? So this is it. They wrote a book, and, I, and I, there's U.S. history books that do this. Eric Foner does it. Kenneth Stamp does it. Uh, do does it. Charles Dew does it. Kevin Levin in his book on black confederates does it. I mean, this is what people do. They have an agenda and they're going to write a book to prove their agenda. Okay? Now, they try to hide behind objectivity. This case, they don't, but oftentimes they do. Now, Charles Dew doesn't. He says, I'm writing this book to bash neo-confederates. Uh, Kevin Levin, I'm writing this book to bash neo-confederates. It's the straw man out there that they try to do. But in this case, they're bashing an entire civilization. There's no such thing as Western civilization even though there is. He says, academics love to play these little word games. Meanwhile, the rest of us know that it's okay to be proud of the achievements of one's ancestors. Nobody really thinks I'm a racist because I, Michael Warren Davis, have more of an affinity for the British Isles than I do for the Andean Mountains or the Great Steppe. But Gabrielle and Perry make a truly heroic effort to defend their point. The authors say of these white supremacists, quote, they looked into the, both the medieval and classical European past and imagined they found white faces like theirs looking back at them. They were wrong about all of this. He says, you'll have to take my word for it, but there's no contest, context for this remark. The authors seem to be arguing that whiteness doesn't exist because 10th century Europe was actually full of black people. If so, that would certainly take the wind out of the alt-right sails, but I'd really like to see their proof. And this is true. I mean, these statements like this, they're dropped in books all the time. And I'm gonna, again, this book that I'm going to rip apart, he does the exact same thing. They just drop statements in, and they don't have any proof. I talked about this with the definitive book on Confederate monuments, which I completely blasted in, into smithereens because she would do stuff like this. Just drop this phrase in with no, no evidence, nothing. You just drop the statement in and think, oh yeah, that's right. This is what they do because they're writing polemics, not histories. 
Over and over, the obsession with debunking white nationalist myths leads them to ridiculous ahistorical conclusions. For instance, they recall how Pope Gregory the Great decided to launch his mission to England. According to the Venerable Bede, Gregory was strolling through the Roman slave markets when he saw a group of boys with fair skin and blonde hair being sold as chattel. Wait a second. I didn't think there was anything like that. I didn't think Europeans were ever subject to this. They were just always the one doing it. He was shocked to learn that the boys were not Christians and immediately resolved to send missionaries to their homeland. Gabriel and Perry omit the part of the story where Gregory asks what the people are called. Angles. Gregory says the name is fitting since, it, since they're as beautiful as angels. You see what he did there? Gregory sends a monk named Augustine to establish a new mission in England. The authors, Gabriel and Perry, declare, quote, This story is deeply unlikely to be true. Well, no. It's actually likely, even deeply likely to be true, Davis says. We know that English slaves were sold in Rome during Gregory's reign. In fact, it's likely unlikely the Pope would have encountered the Angles in any other way. As for the pun, Gregory probably wasn't the first person to compare small children to angels, and he certainly wasn't the last. Why then do the authors conclude that this story is deeply unlikely to be true? Why? Because it may encourage racists, of course. You see, this is the thing. There's a great book out by a guy named Thornton on Africans controlling the slave trade, and he writes in the beginning of the book, I'm worried about writing this book because my conclusions may be used by people that I don't want it to be used by. But he's just simply telling the story. The same thing is the case of Cynthia Nicoletti's book on secession and the legality of secession, essentially. And she says, I'm nervous about writing this book because I, I think that people are going to get out of this that maybe there's something to it. The secession is legal. You see, because when you follow the material, you come to these conclusions, right? This is, this is what happens. And so your job as a historian is not to pass judgment on it, but that's exactly what they do. Even Fogel and Engerman, there's a great piece at the Abbeville Institute coming out this week uh, from John Devaney, a talk he made back in 2008, uh, says this. I mean, look, even Fogel and Engerman in their book on uh, Time on the Cross, go out. They, do, they go through contortions to try to make a point out of not making it sound like they think slavery is a good system. Because there's a moral side of it and other things. But this is what historians nowadays have to do. Instead of just presenting it, this is the case. This is what it was. Okay, well then, it's history, right? We can take it or leave it. According to the authors, the story of Gregory and the, and the Angles is a, quote, founding myth for white supremacist idea about the past. Well, let's just say this about that. First of all, you're not going to find the Venerable Bede quoted in the Daily Stormer. Secondly, it isn't a myth. It's not even... A fake story, as Gabriel and Perry claim. Bede was a historian who was only one generation removed from Gregory I. He was surrounded by men who had known the missionary Augustine and perhaps even Gregory himself. There's no reason to doubt the story unless you assume that Christians are pathological liars. And indeed, Gabriel and Perry declare that in studying medieval history, quote, we must surely move beyond the writings of church fathers and their theological goals. That's not history, it's, it's secretarianism. You'll hardly be surprised to find that this bias doesn't extend to Islam. Predictably, the authors are as mindlessly pro-Muslim as they are anti-Christian. But at least here, the authors are subtle. For instance, they explain uh, that uh, the Arabic for non-Muslims living under Muslim rule possess specific rights, protections, and obligations. That word obligations bears the brunt of the load. These people were given the freedom to worship, but they had to do so virtually in secret. They were forced to pay an exorbitant tax rate, much higher than any that paid by Muslims. They needed permission from Muslim authorities to repair their churches and synagogues and were forbidden from building new ones. 
Their houses had to be smaller than Muslims' houses, and they were forbidden from marrying Muslim women. They were forced to wear certain clothes so as never to be confused with Muslims. They were forbidden from riding horses, camels, and sometimes even mules. Criticizing Islam or trying to convert Muslims was a capital offense. In court, uh, this person was worth less than that of a Muslim man. Their word was worth less than that of a Muslim man. It's impossible that two men with PhDs in medieval history could be ignorant of all this. The decision to downplay this is not only intentional but ideological. Seriously, imagine if a conservative historian said, quote, for black South Africans, apartheid brought specific rights, protections, and obligations. We would call that dishonest and offensive. Yet because Christians and Jews were the victims of this, nobody really cares. Gabriel and Perry are free to twist the facts, and they know it. Naturally, the authors take up the thesis, which has now been embraced by most American educators, that Spain was lucky to be invaded by the Umayyad Caliphate in 711. And the only people who didn't want to be colonized by Berbers and Arabs were racists, unlike, say, the British settlements in North America. Muslims and people of color exploring divisions among white Christians to colonize the lands is totally fine. In fact, it's not even colonialism. According to Gabriel and Perry, the Umayyad are guilty of nothing more than bringing closure to a civil war. Really? They were doing the Spanish a favor. I w- he said, I wish I was making this up. But I mean, this is what you get in these history books. I love this stuff. This is the most brutal review of a book I've read in a long time. And it's good that it's in a publication like the American Conservative because he's free to say these things. If you tried to write this for a journal, for a mainstream academic journal, they wouldn't publish it. They wouldn't publish it at all. They would, you know, they would say that you're being unnecessarily harsh. And there's, there's reasons for these things. Academics are completely stupid. It's just like look at the polls about what is a woman and things like that. I mean, this is just completely ridiculous stuff. If that seems implausible to you, it's that's because you've been brainwashed by Francisco Franco, according to these two guys. According to the author, support for the Reconquista, Spaniards fighting to reclaim Spain from the colonizers, was mainstreamed by Spanish nationalism and contemporary Roman Catholic reactionism, and then embraced by Franco's fascists just before World War II. Gabriel and Perry continue, according to Franco's authoritarian nostalgia, just as medieval Christians fought against Islam, so he fought to retake the country once more, this time from Republicans, anarchists, and communists. Unsurprisingly, this framing remains prevalent to this day. Some might find it improbable that the U.S. education system has been unknowingly teaching Franco's propaganda. Did the General Miso send spies to infiltrate the history departments of American colleges? Did wealthy Spaniards with ties to Franco's government quietly fund campus programs the way China does today? Gabriel and Perry never say. Today, Then we have the Crusades. According to the authors, we honestly don't know. We can never know what was in Pope Urban II's mind when he called the first crusade in 1096. The one thing we cannot say is that the Christians were making a sober, militarily justified defensive action in response to an unprovoked attack. Sorry to nitpick, but ex- actually that's exactly what they were doing. This is, this is where, again, Gabriel and Perry are playing fast and loose with the facts. They're playing fast and loose with what actually happened. But you see, this is a polemic. So they can say these things and drop these bombs and just move on. It's like a drive-by shooting. Drop the, just hit it and move on. This is what they're doing. Gabriel and Perry note that when uh, Caliph Omar took Jerusalem in 638, he issued a decree allowing toleration for non-Muslims. At that point, the holy city was full of Jews and Greek Christians. True enough, that still meant life of a sub-Muslim for the locals in the best-case scenario. Rarely did the Muslim invaders comply with Omar's orders. Christian villages were routinely sacked, their inhabitants slaughtered, 
On holy days like Easter, churches would be burned and worshipers killed. Whole convents full of nuns were murdered. Few Westerners ever seem to wonder how Palestine, the Semitic homeland, came to be populated by Arabic Muslims. Well, that's how. And Jerusalem was only the beginning. In, in the 650s, the, uh, another caliphate attacked the islands of Cyprus, Kos, and Crete. In 653, another general uh, invaded. Another Muslim general invaded Rhodes and destroyed the famed Colossus, and he would soon become the first Umayyad caliph. In 645, the Umayyads invaded Armenia. For a while, they allowed Armenian nobles to rule as their vassals. Then, in 705, the Arab local Arab viceroy invited over a thousand of the country's leading Christians to a meeting, and they locked him inside and burned him. The survivors were crucified. From then on, the Arabs ruled Armenia directly. Six years after the massacre, here the Umayyads invaded Spain. In 827, the, the uh, Muslims invaded Sicily. It took 70 years of fighting and several massacres to conquer the whole island. And in 840, the Muslims invaded the mainland of Italy. They took the cities of Toronto and Bari, Sakapa uh, and Occupied other cities. They raided Rome twice, once in 843 and again in 846. In 870, the Arabs invaded Malta. Then beginning around the year 1070, the Seljuk Turks massacred the populations of Jerusalem, Gaza, Tyre, and Jaffa. Within 10 years, Muslims were officially barring Christians from entering Jerusalem. Bands of armed pilgrims would try to fight their way into the city, but those who weren't killed by Muslims bandit along the way were butchered by Muslim soldiers. We can be fairly confident of all this, we can fairly, I'm sorry, he says we can be fairly confident that all of this was in, the, in Pope Urban II's mind when he called the First Crusade. Those historians like Gabriel and Perry who act like Christians woke up one day and decided to commit genocide are lying, and they know it. Well, this is true. I mean, they, they do know what they're doing. They know that they have an agenda. See, they set their agenda. This is what history, what passes for history nowadays. And by the way, this is from a mainstream press. This is not from some off, you know, one-off place. This is from a mainstream publisher and this book is garbage. But yet, it's going to be championed as the new history. It's the woke history. That's not even the most egregious example of their irrational anti-Christian bias. One chapter of the Bright Ages is dedicated to praising the Vikings, presumably because the Vikings proper were not Christians. It's true that past historians have wrongly characterized the Norse as bloodthirsty savages, but the grounds on which Gabrielle and Perry choose to praise them are bizarre. After describing a Viking ritual in which slave girls were drugged and then set on fire, the authors declare their society featured significant gender parity, at least in key parts of society. Their cities were vibrant hubs of mercantile exchange. Their men were extremely snazzy dressers. I wish it went without saying that nobody who drugs and murders women believes in gender parity. Also, mercantile exchange is an odd euphemism for raiding and slave trading. That's but What really gets me is the line about Norsemen being snazzy dressers. This is one of the cardinal sins among modern historians like Gabriel and Perry. They absolutely refuse to take their subjects seriously. The Vikings were history's most ruthless warriors, and yet you'd think the authors were gossiping about characters in an HBO miniseries. According to Gabriel and Perry, whereas these men of Scandinavia are, are, are proto-feminists, the Byzantines are woman-haters. Why? Because they subjected Empress Theodora to sexist and classist scorn. Like her husband Justinian, Theodora was born a commoner. She worked as an actress, a trade associated with loose morals and even in medieval Byzantium. Much of what contemporary critics wrote about her is vile, too vile to repeat here, and the reputation stuck. Despite being one of the most powerful women in Byzantine history, she's still remembered for her alleged wantonness. According to Gabriel Imperi, 
Quote, the story of Theodore reminds us of the enduring power of patriarchal norms when it comes to depicting and attacking powerful women. But this is what you get. Look, all Gabriel and Perry are doing is regurgitating the leftist tropes you hear online all the time. They're just applying present values to these things and saying all of our history is distorted because all these bad, sexist, white people wrote this stuff. If we just had good people who were woke, nobody would write history like this anymore. But see, as I mentioned, what is history? There's never the last word. There's just the next word. And in this case, I think people are going to look back on this 50 years from now or 70 years from now and be completely embarrassed by this. I think if people somehow, we can save things, People are going to look at this stuff and say, this is the worst garbage American historians or European historians ever produced. It's horrible. He says, I guess the obvious parallel in modern politics will be Melania Trump, a uh, Slovenian ex-model who rose to prominence by securing an advantageous marriage. I searched the author's tweets to see if either of them had said anything about the former first lady. Of course, they both had, and none of it was flattering. My favorite was Professor Gabriel asking, quote, does anyone else think that Melania looks like Sherry Ann Cabot from Best in Show? According to Wikipedia, Sherry Ann Cabot is the plump, buxom, overly made-up trophy wife of the elderly Leslie Ward Cabot, her sugar daddy. Now, I really don't care about the tweet, and neither should you, but it goes to show how disingenuous Gabriel and Perry are. Granted, just because Mrs. Trump's critics often resort to sexist and classist insults, that doesn't exempt her from serious criticism. But the same may be said of Theodora, who happened to live in an age when it was common for actresses to perform uh, salacious things on stage in the moonlight as escorts. Not to speak ill of the dead, but one could easily believe the worst about her. What's more, virtually every historian agrees that she and her husband were poor rulers. Yes, the Code of Justinian is a triumph, and the reign, their reign saw uh, Byzantine culture flourish. But just five years after taking the throne, a huge revolt broke out in Constantinople. The principal causes were the crushing taxes that they levied, especially on the poor, and systemic corruption in the royal bureaucracy. Known today as the Nika riots, it broke out during a sporting event and ended with the government mercenaries blocking the entrances of the stadium and butchering 30,000 civilians. Justinian wished to show mercy to the riot's leaders, but Theodora insisted he make an example of them. Their leaders were promptly executed, their bodies dumped in the sea. To dismiss all of Theodora's critics as classicists and sexists is like saying Syrian people are only revolted against Assad because they didn't like his mustache. I could go on and on and on, he says, about the strange, needless errors in this strange, needless book, but I'd rather not. Actually, I'd like try to avoid writing negative book reviews. I only made an exception this time because, at some level, the authors must know this is a bad book. The Bright Ages is the product of the modern university system, which prioritizes making money above everything else. Academics aren't promoted for their ability to teach. It's all based on their publication history. Professors like Gabriel and Perry pad their resumes by writing these accessible histories for big-name publishers like HarperCollins. Now, let me pause there for a second. This is kind of a slap at popular histories. There's nothing wrong with popular histories. Heck, I do it. I mean, maybe... People would say, well, you're just taking offense. I'm not really offended by this. But I would say this. Popular histories are necessary. The problem is we don't write good popular histories. Shelby Foote's story of the war is more important than any academic book out there. Bar none. Because Shelby Foote's history of the war is accessible. William Marvel, who wrote a wonderful series on the war, is good because you can read its stuff. So writing a great popular history of the Middle Ages is something that people should be striving to do. Something that's excellent about this about this period, but shows what the Middle Ages really was about. They wrote a good... I mean, look, this is why the Durant series, which people have asked about over my shoulder, they're fun. The history of civilization. Because they're written well, and they've got all these little stories in it, and, and, and uh, you know, these, these just great 
uh, niblets of history that you just they just devour it. It's so good. They're good books because of that. Yeah, there's there's biases and other things in it, but the stories make it fun. So he says to stand out in a crowded field, they give their books lucrative uh, lucrative theses is like uh, there were no white people in medieval Europe or high school history teachers are all secret uh, Franco lovers. The theses can't be supported by facts, but it doesn't matter. The point of the book isn't to inform. The point of the book is to show that the author's values are those of an 18-year-old middle-class white girl, the key demographic for college admissions departments. And what do white girls like? Sexy feminist Vikings. Still, I don't think Gabrielle and Perry spent all those years, and I, I say that, because, and that's actually true. Uh, the Vikings are popular right now, and I, I teach classes with uh, a lot of you know, 18, 19-year-old college kids, and that's what they focus on in those shows. This is so you write a book that appeals to these people. Silly says, I don't think Gabriel and Perry spent all those years working on their PhDs just so they could spread lies and slander about medieval Europeans. I wonder when did they first fall in love with the Middle Ages? Maybe it was reading the Canterbury Tales in high school. Maybe it was a visit to Notre Dame de Perry. Or maybe they played too much Age of Empires growing up like me. Deep down, they must be tired of burying their passion under mountains of politically correct nonsense. Part of them must want to share that love, not suffocate it. But I see, there's the thing. I think Davis is being a little bit too kind here. This is what these people think. I've seen it. You go to graduate school, you see it. These people think this stuff. They think these things because they're told to think these things, because they think this is the way forward. There are thousands of talented scholars all over the country who are forced to adulterate their scholarship by pandering to uh, brain-dead teenagers so administrators can give themselves fat bonuses. Yes, that should make us angry, but we should feel pity more than anything else. We deserve a better history of the middle of medieval Europe than the Bright Ages. We deserve better historians than Gabriel and Perry, and so do they. So this is a really fun review, and it exemplifies everything that's wrong with the modern historical profession. It's why I wanted to cover it. I'm going to be getting into another book I want to review, and it's not somebody else's review. It'll be my uh, words on this next time. But I think I wanted to make you aware that this is not just a problem in U.S. history; it's a problem in Western civilization, medieval Europe, all that as well. So. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.